Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I suppose you're referring to my postdoctoral mentor. So um, after I did my PhD, I did my postdoctoral fellowship with Cynthia Kenyon at UCSF. And uh, she is the person who really, I think, cracked open the aging field because she really started to use uh, kind of a logical way to study longevity, which is not just to study how things age, but if you can find a mutant that doesn't age as fast and stays useful, then you can actually start to really understand what's different between those animals and the animals that age fast. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know what? I was referring to your teacher at school when you were basically, I think, didn't she not drive you to a test, the, uh, the SAT <laughs> test, and it was oh. proved to be pretty successful? That is true. That was another Cynthia, Cynthia Gerald. She was my um, English teacher. And actually, I went to a very small school where I had her for the for an, as an English teacher for, I think, all four years of high school. Yeah. So she was fantastic. And um, she was the one who uh, actually got me signed up to take that. And it's true that, you know, if you go to a small school in the middle of nowhere, um, I know it's very like it's not very uh, PC now to talk about standardized testing, but for kids who don't have um, any other way to show that they are doing well academically, then um, things like a standardized test can actually help those kids get to someplace else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what happened to me. Yeah. So she did that. Uh, that was Mrs. Gerald's. And uh, it's funny to think now how young she was, because, you know, of course, when you're in high school, anyone who's even in their 20s seems older, but like, <laughs> she was only a couple of years older than me, I guess, actually, retrospectively. Yeah. But, but you won a National Merit Scholarship, which uh, allowed you then to go to the University of Houston and then started this wonderful journey. Amazing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, University of Houston was very generous. They have an honors program there, and um, what they would do is actually they basically gave these full-ride scholarships. So, you know, in the U.S., uh, college can be very expensive, and so they gave full-ride scholarships to basically a ton of these national merit scholars from the Midwest. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, that's true. I was one of the lucky few, maybe in my generation, who's like doesn't, doesn't have any uh, college debt. Which actually makes a huge difference <laughs> to your life. Goodness knows. Now, you, uh, how, how did you get interested in longevity? This is through the other Cynthia, I presume. That's right. Yeah. So I kind of jumped the gun on that. But yes, um, <laughs> at the end of my PhD, um, where I had done biochemistry and kinetics and some biophysics, uh, where I, you know, in my PhD, I learned how to really um, dissect a question at the sort of single molecule level really well. And I wanted to go the other direction. I wanted to study a really big question. And aging is certainly that, right? You have, you're going to approach it from all different directions. I was interested in understanding it from like say, the molecular and gene expression level. But of course, uh, aging, because it touches all of our lives, we can ask lots of questions about it from you know, mm. economic level, philosophical, kind of all, all kinds of levels involve studying aging. And that's, I think, why it makes a good topic, not just like for delving into, in, at, you know, at this book level, because I tried to pull in a lot of work that wasn't just from my own lab, but really from studies that people all across the field have done. 
Now, you're not a, um, an evangelist. It's not the elixir of life, um, which, of course, people <laughs> have been striving to find for centuries, basically, haven't they? So w- yeah. what, what is your plan? What, what, you're not trying to sell anything to anybody, but you're just really studying what is behind ageing and, and what can be done. That's right. And sometimes I feel like maybe I, you know, I made a mistake. Maybe I could get rich doing this, but I, <laughs> I would rather like really understand this uh, question at the molecular level. I don't want to um, discourage people too much, though, because there have been such amazing breakthroughs across the field in the past uh, 20, 30 years that we're finally getting to the point where we can actually develop some drugs. And that's the field is busy doing that, that could address some of the questions of aging. I just don't think that the you know, the, <laughs> the magic bullet exists yet. Um, at the end of the book, I do mention, you know, like once you've read the whole thing, you'll be very familiar with all the molecular pathways and the discoveries that have been made along the way. Mm. And that gives us an idea um, of, you know, what can we target from a pharmaceutical level that would allow us to maybe slow aging or some of these specific age-related diseases. And I think there is good evidence from, you know, there are biotechs and different efforts to try to develop some drugs to, to, um, uh, you know, really try to get to the point where we can slow aging. And I think we're getting there. Mm-hmm. I just didn't want to, the, the, I didn't want readers to think that we have all the answers yet, which I think, you know, it's very easy when you're, if you just go on, you know, go online and Twitter or some podcast to think that somebody's already found all the aging, you know, all the, the secrets and that they're suddenly going to live long. And I just want people to actually understand the science behind those um, statements and be able to evaluate for themselves what they think that um, they should be taking or what could be developed in the near future. And, of course, we have developed incredibly or progressed, I suppose, because people now, many people are living beyond 100 years, uh, whereas, you know, a few generations ago, if you got to 60 or 70, you were lucky. Um, so how far can we go with this? I mean, what, when you say longevity, have, have you got a figure in mind? Hmm. That's a really good question. You know, a few years ago, there was some debate about what was the maximum lifespan. But, you know, of course, that lifespan is what is the maximum lifespan in the absence of any of the kind of efforts that we're making now, right? All those things I just talked about. So, um, well, you know, it's in different phases, right? So Hmm. the reason people are living as long as they are today is because, one, we've done a great job, I think, of, um, especially from a public health perspective, um, really lessening childhood deaths, although we could always do better. So that's through mostly through um, vaccines that um, really eradicate a lot of childhood diseases. So things like that and public health measures, you know, just sanitation and, um, you know, those kinds of efforts are what have have raised our life expectancy, right? So more people get to middle and old age. So that's not due to any of the research that was done in the aging field, right? That was just, you know, like helping people not die, you know, kids not get polio, example, or um, measles, which sadly, you know, people are not listening to experts and are not getting the vaccine they should anymore. Mm -hmm. But um, in theory, you know, for all those things where we've addressed um, early deaths, uh, we should be allowing people to live to, you know, middle age and old age. And so now comes the question, can we help people live longer despite, you know, having certain disorders with age. And so that's where we really want to try to attack those age-related diseases, you know, metabolic disorders, age-related cancers, um, 
cardiovascular diseases. So those kinds of things are what we really need to focus on now to sort of raise the life expectancy and the maximum age of people. And I suppose the life quality is a big issue as well. Absolutely. In fact, um, for me, that's the most important thing. I don't think, I think there's often a little bit of confusion about what we're aiming for. Certainly, um, most people that I know who study aging, we're interested in slowing down those kinds of processes that decrease our quality of life with age. So, for example, my lab has been very specifically interested in two questions. One was increasing, like, so studying reproductive aging. Can we extend our reproductive span? And the second question, which I think is really pressing for older people, is can we maintain our cognitive uh, capabilities with age? And that is the one where I really feel like if we could do, you know, even move the needle a little bit with that, that actually itself would really increase um, the quality of life of people at, you know, their very oldest age. And so I think that's the one I'm, I'm most interested in. Of course, the other thing, you mentioned podcasts before, you can hear any podcast, uh, you know, that will tell you that exercise, proper diet, getting enough sleep are all uh, actions that can help you live longer. But I understand marriage as well has uh, a part. (laughs) Well, that depends on whether you're a man or a woman. So, um, (laughs) you know, and this is not based on my research, but they're reading um, papers in the field where they've studied you know, where demographers, people have studied like as a, you know, at a large scale. And it appears that there's some interesting data there with, um, yes, men live longer if they're married, women don't. Mm. Um, and uh, men benefit from having a daughter uh, rather than a son. Oh. And so I think, and also women, uh, let's see, let's, there's some, you know, when men whose wives die, they actually then live shorter. And so all of this kind of boils mm-hmm. down to who's taking care of whom and social interactions, right? So it's very clear that um, increased social interactions are good for us. And um, that often women provide that social interaction mm-hmm. and help for men, especially older men. So I think we, and <laughs> so those are kind of the the things that if we think about it makes sense and there are things that that means that we can actually do something about it right so yes. instead of just saying okay well that's that's that we could actually start thinking about how do we help people who are older and feel less isolated mm-hmm. and i think those kinds of things would be good for us to think about now that's great uh, let's uh, change tech a wee bit because i want to introduce the worm <laughs> which i think dr cynthia yeah. kenyon uh, she was been experimenting with this worm called c elegans that's correct. Tell us about what yeah, impact the diet Okay, so um, C. elegans is one of the major model organisms that's been used for uh, aging, for basically genetic research. It was kind of a newcomer to the field um, back in the seventies. So before that, Drosophila, you know, fruit flies had been used for you know a century to study genetics. And then Sidney Brenner introduced C. elegans because uh, very, very like deliberately, the question that he was interested in was, um, can we study neuron development in a very simple organism? And C. elegans only has 302 neurons and it only has 959 cells total. So if you want to understand how does a cell go from an embryo, a single celled embryo to a fully developed organism, C. elegans is a great system for that. Mm-hmm. And um, and so there have been a number of Nobel Prizes along the way, people studying programmed cell death and understanding neural development. And 
a great tool in the field, uh, RNAi. And so all of these tools make it a great system for studying anything, any sort of genetic questions, particularly development. But what Cynthia wanted to do was ask, can we find mutants that live longer? And in the course of setting up the experiment where she was going to mutate these worms and identify the ones that lived a long time, it just turned out that the control she very smartly used, so the background strain that she was going to use, um, actually when she did the test, it turned out they lived twice as long. And that mutant is called DAF2. And later on, Gary Rubkin's lab cloned the gene that made this thing live longer, and it turned out to be the insulin receptor. And so once you hear the word insulin, it seems less foreign, right? It's less, yes. less, uh, you know, just the weird worm thing, right? So, um, and that turned out to be true. So then later on, when people studied uh, what are the genes that are common for centenarians, so you have extremely long-lived people, it turns out mutations in the insulin receptor and the IGF-1 receptor, and all the way downstream, um, down that genetic pathway to a transcription factor called FOXO, which is the same thing that acts in our worms to make them live long. Those are all well conserved. So I'm basically what I'm trying to get the message out there is that, you know, when we do these experiments, and these simple model systems, we do them because they're fast and easy and we can be really logical and clean about it. Mm. And often what we find are genes that are very well conserved in us. And so that means when we study it, we're not just trying to understand how a worm works, we're trying to understand what are the common mechanisms that may allow us to preserve our function with age. And, the, and C. elegans have been a great system for that because, you know, you find something there, we test it, we find it. Everyone at first is like, oh, that's just in worms, but then we find out it's true in fruit flies. And then we test it in mice and find out it's true there. So, and like I said, these centenarian studies as well. So for the things that are very well conserved and important for regulating lifespan, they're actually extremely well conserved and worms have been great for, um, you know, cracking that door open for us so we can understand things better. So we've found what what does impact their lives, what does increase their lives, and now is it a case of then trying to adapt that to humans? Yeah, um, and a lot of things, um, you know, it's partly people trying to take the messages from C. elegans up to higher organisms. Uh, the other thing that often happens is sort of, you know, the serendipitous finding where, you know, at the same time, you find something in worms, but your colleague who works on Drosophila or, or mice actually finds the same thing. Mm. Um, in our case, we're really interested in, in memory. And, um, you know, I, I set up this research program in 2005 for my lab, and we started working on this idea of could we discover ways to maintain learning and memory with age? And it was always with this hope that what we'd find in worms would be, you know, something important in mammals. And so it wasn't until we started finding those genes that we really started to believe this might be true. And so we did these tests where we found a particular gene. So it's got a dumb name in worms called Aquil 30. But anyway, so it has this, this protein. When it's active and we can activate it in a single neuron of old worms, it rescues worms' memory. So we're really excited about that. We're like, okay, this is exactly the kind of thing that we'd want to do. You know, if you could activate something in an old person that would make them have better memory, that would be great, right? Absolutely. And so what we did, yeah. So then um, I convinced my um, friend and colleague, Sal Vieta at UCSF, to do the analogous experiment in mice. And that is he and Greg Bieri, they um, injected into the hippocampus, so the brains of two-year-old mice. So two-year-old mice are like, 75 year old people 80 year old mm -hmm. and they activated they injected this same protein that we'd done in worms and they found that they have great memory 
All right. So they did the same experiment. And then when we like took the brains and understood all the, you know, did all the work in the brains to like look at their gene expression changes, it's the exact same pathway. It turns on same genes, everything. So this tells us that, you know, if you want to maintain memory, uh, we didn't just find something weird in worms. It works in old mice as well. And that, and we have the exact same protein in us as well. So the hope is that if we could figure out a way to activate the same protein in older humans, maybe we would preserve cognitive function in them as well. Can you tell me, how do you test a, a mouse memory? Um, yeah. I mean, how do you work well, that so out? Mouse, yeah. So every organism where people have studied learning and memory, like these are really um, robust and like well-established fields. Um, especially for, especially in the mouse field. Um, so what they do are they have a variety of tests. One's called a novel object recognition test, and that's pretty simple. They put a an object in a mouse's cage, and the mouse will investigate it for a while. And then if they come back 24 hours later and they put in a new object there, they'll know not to spend time with the old object, but they'll only spend time investigating the new object, right? Because that tells you that they they m remember the old object, right? Mm. Um, so that's one test. There are other things like radial arm water maze where the mice have to like swim to find the exit and they have to remember they go through a training period where they mm -hmm. learn where that is. And then you can ask with how well they remember that the next day. And so that's, you know, that's their memory. Mm -hmm. And so what we did with worms was we simply um, set up some very simple assays using, you know, Pavlov's dogs, right? So just that same idea as the dogs with the saliva and the bell and the steak. Mm. Um, what we did with worms was you said, okay, worms, what are they like? They pretty much only like food. And so their food is bacteria. And so what we did was we just, we starved them for a little while and then we feed them bacteria again, but while they're smelling an odor and that odor is something we know that they can sense, mm. but they don't particularly care about it. It's neutral odorant. And so then, then when, um, after they've been trained, now they think, when they encounter a spot of that odor, they think they're going to get lunch, right? So we just use that assay, just asking, are they attracted to that odor now when they weren't before um, to measure learning? And then we can just increase the amount of time to test memory. Yeah. And just using that very simple logic, we were able to discover these things that are extremely well conserved between uh, worm memory and mouse memory. And, you know, our hope is that we'll, you know, go on up to exactly to humans as yeah. well. So you lengthened the lives of these worms, the C. elegans worms. What did they eventually die of? Did you work out that? Yeah, actually. So, um, and there are several labs studying that, particularly I think David Gems in London has uh, studied that in great detail. And also um, uh, Monica Driscoll at Rutgers, her, her lab has as well. So like us, they can die of different things, depending on the particular animal. Um, it seems that, for example, they uh, eventually stop digesting their food correctly. And so their intestines kind of get, they get kind of sick from that. Mm. Um, eventually their muscles stop working and their neurons stop working. So they'll stop crawling around. So even if they were alive, you know, if, to test if they're still alive, we poke them in the head. <laughs> and um, if they still wiggle, then the count is alive. And so if they don't wiggle anymore, then uh, we count them as dead. It's possible they're still alive, but they just can't move. Yeah. And so I think um, there's also, you know, uh, a couple of these labs have reported things like seeing a flash of light as they die. I don't know. Uh, we haven't observed that as well. But, wow. I mean, they've basically done sort of like, you know, the, the pathology on these, these yes. animals to 
detect it. And you can also, there was a lovely set of papers, um, particularly Laura Herndon when she was in Monica Driscoll's lab, uh, where they do EM, electron microscopy of animals at different ages, and they could see um, the breakdown of these animals different age. And the, one of the cool things that they observed was that the muscles actually decline in the same way in worms and in humans in a condition called sarcopenia. So when your muscles degrade, whether you're a worm or a person, that, that's bad. <laughs> so, yeah, so we can study all kinds of things that change with age. So that's a great lesson, isn't it? That make sure you keep the exercise up and uh, resistance and weight training a, a little bit if you can manage that. Um, you know, it will right. lengthen your life. Fantastic. Now, can I ask one more question? Um, and this is about there's a, a documentary series. I think it's on Netflix, um, the Blue Zones, and talks about mm. various parts of the world where people seem to live longer. Uh, places in Europe, I think, in Greece or somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. I think Japan. Right. What, what is the the Blue Zone? Can you describe that? Is that a real thing? Well, I mean, there's definitely real observations of places and people within those places where. Uh, people live a long time. Now, you know, it depends on how you define it. So there's different populations. So you could argue in some cases it's probably genetic because if people are all related to one another, maybe they share the same mutation. But um, of course, the work on the blue zones has been all about, are there conditions that allow people to live a long time? Mm-hmm. And um, so that's the idea behind like in this, also in this documentary. Um that the places where people live a long time share a few traits. And sometimes it's parts of their diet, right? So a very healthy, like Mediterranean diet. Other mm-hmm. things are walking a lot and um, sort of a relaxed life. Um, Stress-free. Not stressful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and of those, you know, the different blue zones seem to have different, slightly different recipes for this, this long life. Um, and of course, it would be nice to know if there's a genetic component as well. I think at least in one of the cases, it's not definitely not genetic because um, the people are actually all from different backgrounds. Mm. I think that's the, uh, the area in California. So I think the point is that to, if we can learn some lessons, and, but they're lessons I think we kind of already know, like, like we should eat well, we mm. should walk, we should get exercise, we should try not to be stressed. A lot of these are unavoidable. <laughs> like, <laughs> like stress, maybe not something you choose. <laughs> and so um, we do our best, right? So I, yeah, that's what the idea of the blue zones and maybe these um, external factors that you could try to adopt in order to live longer. Mm. So my absolute final question, promise. Uh, what uh, right. I, I imagine you get asked all the time. What can I do? to slow down the aging process? I suppose we've kind of answered that with the, you know, you say good diet, good exercise. But what, what's your answer to most people when they ask you that question? I mean, it's, it's pretty complicated. So the question is, are you already at your maximum right now? Right, so for a lot of people, they don't have access to, like, at least in the United States, right? We have very heterogeneous access to healthcare. Um, a lot of what you, a lot of what, will determine how long you live is based on how rich you are, because that determines whether you have access to health care, mm. exercise, good food, stress, right? So, so those things, um, but then when you get to the point of, well, I've done everything I possibly can, then the last few bits are probably going to be in the, you know, next, the coming years, right? Where there might be a few drugs you could take that would slow your aging rate. Now, one of the biggest things that I think is kind of interesting, it's really cropped up in the past couple of years, is the fact that, you know, since most people, if we look at what they die of, um, 
in the United States, at least cardiovascular disease is a big one. And um, so this is like tied into metabolic disorders. And it's really interesting to me that, um, you know, these semi-glutide drugs are probably in the United States going to have, like at least for the people who have access to them, it's going to reduce cardiovascular disease and greatly increase the lifespan of the people who can get those drugs. Mm. So to me that, you know, nobody developed that to be a longevity drug. It was really originally a diabetes drug, but really that's what we're talking about. Like people who can um, address those metabolic disorders. I'd say after that, you know, I'm not a big proponent of dietary restriction, even though some people are evangelical about that. I really am not. I really like, I think that eating food is part of quality of life. So um, I guess if you're desperate to live a long time, you can try to emulate that. I'm I'm not really a big proponent of that, but I do think exercise, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, that's one of the things that probably is good for everybody and has a lot of benefits that, uh, that we don't even fully know about yet. So I think that's the one thing people can increase the amount of exercise or body movement they get. I think that's probably going to be the most helpful. Well, Colleen, lovely to <clears throat> chat with you. It's been fascinating um, and congratulations on your work and keep it up. And uh, I hope you live a very long life and study so much more and learn <laughs> so much more. <laughs> you as well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.